What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Brian, thank you very much. And I am so with you on Fauda on Netflix. It is a great program if you haven't seen it. All right, here's what's ahead right now on The Exchange. For the 17th straight week, the number of people filing for jobless benefits has topped a million. Over 50 million Americans have now lost their jobs since the start of the COVID crisis. Is the market starting to price in doubts about the recovery? The snapback, how fast, how high? Plus, Twitter's massive hack, was it a diversion from something else? Were they casing the joint? A top former CIA official, Sue Gordon, says it's a real possibility and she'll join us live. And Netflix on the clock, airlines battle it out for the Northeast and a big pizza beat. But we begin today's uh, with today's markets and Mr. Pisani. Bob? Hello, Tyler. Good to see you as always. Uh, let's take a look at the major averages here. A fairly choppy day with a narrow trading range. What's a narrow range? Well, about 15 points in the S&P. That's pretty narrow. That was being helped by Caterpillar and 3M, those industrials. Although Boeing is down, hurt by technology stocks. And really, that's been the story all week. There's been a very consistent theme. The trend is Tech and mega cap tend to underperform, and the cyclical names tend to do better. And cyclical names are industrials, uh, materials tend to do a little bit better on outperformance. They're down today, but outperforming on a relative basis. Banks holding up, even though Bank of America is down a little bit, and you see tech underperforming. Big mega caps, uh, except for Apple, they're all down this week. In fact, Amazon's really slipping. It's down about 6% for the week. Uh, the other big names other than Apple are all down 2 3 Four or five percent. We're using we call it a source of funds where they use it to buy other things, including those industrials. Housing market index was really strong today. Good numbers here, and we're getting great comments from the builders here. Toll, Hobnanian, Horton, all on the upside. Building materials and retail sales this morning stronger than expected. Building materials up seventeen percent year over year in retail sales. That's really helping. Look at these new new highs list. It's Lowe's and Masco's and Sherwin Williams uh, and Lumber Liquidators and Generac that makes the generators, pool supply companies, air conditioning, all doing really well. Guys, back to you. All right, Robert, thank you very much. Uh, as growth powerhouses start to lose a little bit of their steam uh, and under the radar value names, are they poised now to outperform from here? Let's uh, talk to Dan Genter. He's the CEO and chief investment officer of RNC Genter Capital Management. Tobias Lefkovich is the chief U.S. strategist at City. Welcome, guys. Uh, glad to have you with us. Dan, let me begin with you. You know, value stocks have been underperforming for quite a while, and they can keep underperforming for quite a while. Is now the time to nibble at them or what? Well, we think it is, Tyler. And I think you, when you're looking at it, the spread that we're seeing now between value and growth is actually almost 29 percent. I mean, it's, it's exactly what it was you know, coming out of the tech wreck in, in 99 and 2000. So we're in a situation to where that, that you've never had a better situation in the last 10 years to where value is more attractive. And we're actually starting to see it close the gap. It, it actually was in excess of 30 percent spread you know, where the growth names are up about 14 percent right now. Value names are down about 15 percent. 
But even in the last few days, that, that gap has narrowed about 3 or 4%. So you're clearly starting to see rotation as people realize this economy is going to recover, but it's going to be slow. And finding real growth is, uh, is going to be a challenge. And they want to be in some companies that are more stable and much higher dividends. You refer back to the tech wreck uh, of 2000-ish uh, and, and said, you know, that that was when a gap was as wide as it is today between growth on the one hand and value on the other. Right. But so what happened then? Did value then go on to outperform growth? And let's not forget that some of those growth names really weren't businesses at all. Right. Absolutely. And what happened is it was a very significant rotation for literally a decade after after underperforming for about five or six years, reaching this type of a spread, then value outperformed literally for almost 10 years. So the value growth cycle tends to be about a 10 year rolling average. And and right now, when you're looking at the S&P, even if you look at, you know, a, a 155 number for S&P earnings, S&P, mm-hmm. the 500 itself is trading at about 22 times. But if you look at the value indexes, they're trading at about 15 and a half times. And some of the more deeper value high dividend stocks and so on are, are trading at 10 or 11. So the value is clearly there and people are, are starting to see it and they're rotating to it. All right, Tobias, let's uh, let's have you take apart Dan's argument that he's made there <laughs> in favor of value. I don't know whether you agree or you don't agree, but implicit in it is a concern that the market is so concentrated into large cap growth names, the names we all know, whether it's Microsoft, Alphabet, Apple, etc., Amazon, Netflix, all of them. Are you worried about the breadth of the market, the narrowness of the leadership, and what do you think of the value argument? So let me let me kind of address three different things in there. First of all, Tyler, I agree totally with you with Fauda on a recommendation. <laughs> Isn't um, it good? It the, is so good. Yeah, but the last season ending was horrible. But anyway, um, <laughs> I haven't gotten there. For those who see it, well, you got. I'm oh, sorry to, to blow it for you. That's all right. Let me let me let me let me shift over to the the value growth issue. So we had massive outperformance of growth into the tech bubble. In 2000, we saw value kind of re- retake the lead, mainly because of what happened to tech. And it continued until 2007, 2008. And then the financial crisis knocked out the biggest player in value, which was financials. And they always trade at low PEs. So I don't think looking at just the PE is the right metric for financials. It's more price to book. Generally, though, I agree that value is probably a better place to be. Our lead indicator models suggest that's the case for the next 12 months, but not necessarily next month or two. And I think that's the nibble term you used before is probably the right term as opposed to, you know, grab it and stuff it down your face. Um, I think the big catalyst historically has been when credit defaults really surge and people think the kind of the, the worst news is behind you cyclically. That's kind of your big catalyst. And with one other respect in there, the concentration of leadership. So we love to point out to people that if you looked at the second quarter trend, um, about 20%, actually 25% of S&P 500 constituents beat the market by more than 10 percentage points. So we had 125 names that did really, really well. And it wasn't just four or five names. So when everybody talks about the narrowness of the market, I, I think they're missing some other critical criteria. Obviously, there's the big companies everybody likes to talk about. Um, and, you know, the question is, are there too much crowding in there? I would agree, right. not just from U.S. investors, but even international investors. Dan, are there particular sectors or types of stocks that you tilt toward right now? Well, actually, we, we do like the financials. And I think that, you know, you're, you're in a situation, you're seeing the reporting that's coming out from J.P. Morgan, what's coming out from Morgan Stanley, even B of A, that 
though it's being looked at as a little bit negative this morning, the fact of the matter is uh, deposits were up 21 percent. You know, they got a little squeezed on that interest margins, but their their growth is extremely strong. They're trading, they're trading basically at, at 10 percent discount to book value and a nine P.E. And you get three percent dividend while you wait. So I think, you know, that's a very strong sector. And frankly, I think, you know, some of the even the sin stocks, when you start to look at an Altria, uh, you're going to get almost eight percent in dividend yield while you wait with tremendous mm-hmm. pricing power. And, uh, you know, they're going to they're going to play in the beer and wine sector. They're going to play in the cannabis sector. I mean, these are all companies that are going to survive. They're going to do well. And frankly, we just like the fact that if you can get, you know, four, five, six, even eight percent in dividends while you wait this out, you know, this long turnaround, you're going to get paid for for that time. All right, gentlemen, thank you very much. We are out of time, but uh, we certainly appreciate your time today. Uh, Dan, Tobias, great as always to see. And I'll I'll be working through uh, Fauda here over the next week. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Attorney Thanks, General William Barr, a short time ago, ramping up the rhetoric against not only Hollywood, but also big tech in how they deal with China. Kayla Tausche joins us with the latest. Kayla. Well, Tyler, the administration is not going forward with sanctions on Chinese officials for now, but the Trump administration is making it clear the gloves are off, at least rhetorically, in its views of the Chinese Communist Party. In a speech today in Michigan, the Attorney General, William Barr, launched a blistering broadside against China and specifically the U.S. corporations that choose to operate there. Barr name-checked Disney, saying that by opening Disney Shanghai, it was subjecting itself and its brand and its intellectual property to copyright and said there had just been another park that was essentially a copycat of Disney Shanghai that opened up just down the street. And it did not stop there. He name-checked a whole host of tech companies challenging their views on encryption, security, and saying essentially that they're bending their bylaws to get China's business. Hollywood is far from alone in kowtowing to the PRC. America's big tech companies have also allowed themselves to become pawns of Chinese influence. Corporations such such as Google, Microsoft, Apple have shown themselves all too willing to collaborate with the CCP. Now, Apple and other companies have long defended their operations in China and their practices there and the security of data that is stored there. It's no secret the White House wants to craft a policy to incentivize many of these companies to close those operations and onshore them back in, in the U.S. And it is also clear, Tyler and Melissa, the White House, just a couple months before the election, does not want to cede the hawkish high ground to former Vice President Joe Biden. Back but, the, to you. but the fact of the matter is, isn't it, uh, Kayla, that these companies are, are there for reasons of production in some cases, but also because this is an extraordinarily lucrative market to sell into? Yes, and they want access to the Chinese consumer, to the burgeoning middle class in China. But one of Barr's arguments was essentially that as American companies, that these are brands that are looked to as examples. They are expected to uphold a certain set of values. And at least in Barr's words, they are not. Tyler. All right, Kayla, thank you very much. Kayla Tausche. Coming up, more on Twitter's massive hack. Was it a dry run for something else or maybe a diversion? A top former CIA official, Sue Gordon, will weigh in with her assessment of just what happened. Plus, Netflix on deck with earnings. Can the streaming giant keep up its COVID momentum? The stock is up more than 60% so far this year. There you see it at $526 a share. We'll tell you what you need to know ahead of the report. The exchange returns in two minutes.
This is The Exchange on CNBC. The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Welcome back, everybody. Twitter shares under pressure right now following a massive and unprecedented hack targeting accounts of some of the site's most high-profile users, including Elon Musk and former President Obama. Let's get to Eamon Javers for the latest. Hi, Eamon. Tyler, everything we know about this attack comes from Twitter itself, which put out a statement last night explaining some of the details about what happened here. Twitter is saying uh, that this was a coordinated social engineering attack and it successfully targeted some of our employees with access to internal systems. They say they're also looking at what other malicious activity these attackers may have conducted or information they may have accessed. So Twitter trying to get to the bottom of this themselves, but they're saying it was a massive social engineering attack, which means that in some way the cyber attackers here manipulated people inside Twitter. We don't know exactly how or to what end, uh, but tricked them in some way, presumably, uh, with an email, a Slack message, something along those lines uh, that gave them the sense that they were communicating with somebody that they could trust, somebody of their, in their close circle of friends and colleagues. That seems to be what happened here, but there's a lot we just don't know, Tyler. And some of the folks I've talked to over the past 24 hours here are worried that what we saw yesterday, as disruptive as it was on Twitter, and if you were following it, it was really disruptive, uh, could just be a prelude to what we might see going into the election season, given that uh, there are a number of nation states and a wide variety of hackers out there who saw the Russian playbook in 2016 of stealing documents and releasing them online to influence the election. That playbook is now in the hands of a lot more players. Uh, and the question is whether we're going to see a lot more of this going into the election. The phrase social engineering, Eamon, sounds a little curious to me. Is it, is it just a fancy way of saying that these hackers turned or bribed someone on the inside? Yeah, it, that's exactly what it is. Usually what they're talking about when they say social engineering in cyberspeak is some kind of a trick. You get an email. It appears to be from your boss, your colleague. Uh, you know, you think that this is a real email. It's dressed up to look exactly like it. It might even refer to some previous communications you had with that person. So it feels real and you respond to it and you may give up uh, the routing number for a check. You may respond with some with the address of someone. They can get information by tricking you uh, and pretending to be somebody who's close to you. But it also, in theory, that's the term that's broad enough that maybe it could include the idea of bribing an insider. And, and security experts always talk about the, the ultimate threat is the insider threat. All right. Thank you very much, Eamon. Eamon Javers in Washington for us. Let's bring in now one of the country's foremost experts on cybersecurity, Sue Gordon, former principal deputy director of national intelligence. She's also a CNBC contributor. Sue, it's wonderful to see you again. As we look at this attack, uh, little harm done, apparently. Uh, the worry is, I would suppose, that this could either have been some sort of diversion or some kind of probing of the defenses of a major online player, namely Twitter. Yeah, I think you have it right, Tyler. I think on its on its surface, it's it's just cyber being an opportunistic predator. You know, you've got a huge uh, social awareness and people 
see something from someone they think they know and they want to they want to contribute and criminals just feed on that. But I think you have hit on the two concerns. Number one is this time it was just money, but imagine it on election day if uh, your local uh, election authority tells you to go to the wrong place. I mean, so there's a lot of mayhem that can happen. And then the second is this was clearly administrative access. So it wasn't that each of those individuals accounts were hit. It was that someone who got in Twitter was able to do something massive. And that's something that we really need these companies and entities that are holding private information to kind of get with the program of the responsibility that they have, both protecting technically, but also really investing in what we talk about, the humans that are involved, because almost all cyber attacks actually have a human element. Not many of them are just going through wires. They use a human to enable them. So it points to the responsibility these companies have really got to pick up on. They've got to pick up on their on their inside processes, yes. on their people, etc. Right. Here, the the literal payoff presumably was money. This is what was yep. this is what was being gone after here, which bad as it is, uh, is is nothing compared with what could right. happen if these malefactors got access to the electoral systems or in a big way to a banking system. But the elections are the main thing that I would worry about. Yeah. So you you just, there are some clear but difficult things to do. One, there needs to be a standard by which you're protecting information. And then two, people have administrative access because we know they're the pathway in, and that's true whether it's an election system or whether it's Twitter. Those people who have access to administrative level controls they need to be really educated, really invested in, and really have limited authority without oversight to do things. Because whether it was purposeful or whether they were just duped, their compromise has massive systemic effects. And like you say, if we're talking about U.S. policy or elections or international finance, those are much bigger consequences than a few hundred thousand right. Bitcoin. You know, Sue, the, the elections in, in the United States are administered by the states and by counties. Yeah. What is your level of confidence that they're up to the task of protecting their operations? Uh, I think we are much better positioned than we were in 2018, and we're much better positioned than we were in 2016. But ultimately, it comes down to whether the protections that we know are necessary have been put in place and have the people who are running it been made aware of the threats that are to them. These cyber attackers are getting more sophisticated. Just one thing about about the messages that came from the Elon Musk and the and the Tim Cooks, the messages were different from each other. And so they're getting smarter about how to influence humans to do their bidding. Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating thing. What is the thing that worries you most in the world of cybersecurity right now? Yeah, I think it's that we are um, not seriously considering um, coordinated protections and standards for those entities that hold important information or conducting important acts. You know, I was thinking the other day that that in the 1930s, we saw um, really the investment in uh, accounting principles and practices 
because we knew that what companies were doing had to be done to a standard of what has. I wonder if this is the time that we look at some cyber uh, practices that are common and cro- led mm-hmm. by the government and common to companies that are holding our security in their hands with their actions. Maybe Fascinating. Sue Gordon, thank you, as always. Great to see you. You bet. Have a good uh, rest of the week and summer. All right, coming up, everybody, we, will we get another COVID relief package? The Chamber of Commerce is pushing Congress to get one done. The Chamber's executive vice president will join us with what he says needs to be in the next legislation. Plus, a new partnership between two major airlines. The details and what it means for the competition and for con- customers like you. And a reminder, you can always watch us or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. The exchange is back in two minutes. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are, with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash activecash. Welcome back, everybody, to The Exchange. Let's take a look at markets right now. Uh, As you see, here are some of the movers uh, this hour. Shares of Sleep Number, the numbers going down today, despite quarterly results that beat on both the top and bottom lines. The mattress retailers in-store sales down 40 percent. Online and phone sales, though, up 200 percent. Sleep Number, as you see right now, down about 10 percent at 48 and 29. Tesla down today after vehicle registrations in California fell nearly 48 percent in the second quarter compared with the previous year. Model 3 registrations fared even worse, falling nearly 64 percent. And those shares, Tesla's that is, at $1,522, down a little more than 1 percent or $22 a share. And shares of, of space are out of this world. Virgin Galactic appointing a new CEO and board member Michael Colglazer was most recently president of Disney Parks International and Virgin Galactic currently trading higher of the trio stocks we talk about. That's the only one up and up nearly 16 percent at twenty one forty four. Let's go to Sue Herrera now for a CNBC News update. Hi, Sue. Hello, Ty. Hello, everybody. Here's what's happening at this hour. To ease the burden on working parents, New York City will sponsor child care for 100,000 kids who will be unable to attend school full time in the fall. The city plans to offer a mix of in-person and distance learning. NBC News reporting Dr. Anthony Fauci and President Trump spoke for the first time in weeks yesterday. The conversation comes amid increasing tensions between White House leadership and task force members. And these pictures are the closest ever taken of the sun. 
They were captured by the Solar Orbiter, an international collaboration between the European Space Agency and NASA. And later this month, Jeopardy! will begin airing material from its archives for the first time ever. That's according to its host, Alex Trebek, who has been battling stage four pancreatic cancer. But he says his treatment is paying off. And we wish him continued success. That's the news update this hour. Ty, back to you. All right. Thank you very much, Sue. Sue Herrera. As cases of the coronavirus spike here in the United States, we could be facing more economic pain. And the Chamber of Commerce now is calling for congressional action. It sent a letter addressed to President Trump and congressional leaders asking that a phase four relief package include the likes of targeted aid for small businesses, assistance for child care centers and elementary schools, as well as extended unemployment benefits. Joining me now is Neil Bradley. He's the executive vice president and chief policy officer at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Uh, Mr. Bradley, welcome. Good to have you with us. You guys have been calling for uh, extra stimulus to uh, keep the economy moving forward uh, for some time now. As you see it, how do you handicap the odds of that happening and what are the obstacles to it? Well, we're very optimistic. It's going to get done because it has to get done. If we're going to beat this virus, if we're going to help our economy recover, we need timely, targeted, temporary assistance from Washington. Um, One of the things that we've had the benefit of doing over the last several months is talking to businesses of all sizes across all industries throughout the country and learning exactly what's needed. That's what we transmitted to the president and Congress today. Um, I think they will get it done, and I think we'll have to bridge the partisan differences that we simply can't afford to become an impediment uh, to to, uh, progress in this area. On on the one hand, as I understand it, the Democratic side has put forth a package of more than $3 trillion. Uh, The GOP side, something north of $1 trillion. One of the main sticking points, as I understand it, beyond the scale of the two uh, proposals, is a provision in it that would provide some sort of liability protection uh, to businesses. I know you are on the side of favoring that. I think the Democrats are on the side of limiting that protection if it would be in there at all. Explain your case for it. Absolutely. Thanks, Ty. And it's not just about businesses. We've been joined by nonprofits and uh, universities and colleges, all who agree that if a, a school or a nonprofit or a business takes the appropriate steps uh, informed by public health officials to try to prevent the spread of the virus, that they shouldn't be dragged by a trial lawyer into court a year from now, alleging that they should have done more. We're not asking for immunity for anyone here. We believe a common sense safe harbor. You follow the advice of the the medical experts in your business or your school, and then you shouldn't have to be worried about a court second guessing that later. One of the reasons we're optimistic about this is because there's growing bipartisan support for it. Earlier this week, a group of uh, Democrats and Republicans sent a letter to the leadership endorsing this type of approach. And it's passed before, whether that was in the lead up to Y2K or right after 9-11. This is a tried and true response to very uncertain circumstances. I've got two quick questions that I want to get in. First one is you have an interesting take on the on this one of the sticking points, which is to extend the enhanced unemployment benefits, which had been six hundred dollars a month, a month, I think. Uh, And uh, sorry, was it a a week or a A week? Six hundred a week. Excuse me. Uh, Which is a lot of money. Uh, And and many have said is a disincentive to have people go back to work. What's your solution to that one quickly? 
We have to bridge the gap. Under the current policy, the average unemployed person makes 134% of what they made working. If we got rid of it entirely, they'd make 45% of what they earned working. We think to come into the sweet spots about 90% of what they earned working, it's gonna make sure that they can pay the bills, but it'll also make sure that we get them back into the workforce and back helping our economy. Interesting, and I wanna get your take. I don't know whether you've heard some of the remarks that Attorney General Barr uh, said giving a speech. He really went after uh, several, by name, large American businesses that do a lot of business in China, assailing them for being sort of in the pocket, I would say, of the Chinese Communist Party, particularly on uh, matters of intellectual property theft. I think we may have lost Neil Bradley's uh, signal there. But boy, was that was that a good question or what? Maybe I'll answer it. I don't know. No, I'm not going to answer it. Neil Bradley, we thank you. You're frozen in place over there. We'll get you next time. The pizza trade is still hot. Could Peloton keep peddling? And an online bookstore celebrates 25 years on the web. All that and more coming up in today's edition of The Rapid Fire. I will ask the questions. I will answer the questions when the exchange returns. Folks, welcome back to The Exchange. Let's catch up on a few stories that uh, should be on your radar. Maybe they are. It's time for Rapid Fire. Here with their takes are Seema Modi, Leslie Picker, Kate Rogers. Let's start, uh, Kate, with Domino's Pizza delivering very strong second quarter results, whopping a 16% surge in U.S. same-store sales, more Americans ordering pizza delivery, takeout amid coronavirus lockdowns. Though Domino's is down a little bit today, but the shares are up 40% on the year. I guess we shouldn't be terribly surprised. People aren't eating out in restaurants, so they're dialing up and delivering. Yeah, that's right, Tyler. And one interesting thing that was mentioned on the call today is even as dining rooms are starting to open in cities and states around the country, they haven't really seen a drop off in business. They also noted that people are ordering more. They're spending more money, seemingly potentially for leftovers. And as you mentioned, 16 percent comp in the U.S. That is remarkable, just given the the staggering numbers and drops in business that we're seeing from other uh, players in this space. But we talked about this earlier in the week. Domino's, uh, also Papa John's, Chipotle, Wingstop, those have been really the four outperformers in the restaurant sector during this time, just because people are really relying on carryout and delivery. Once again, though, Domino's does this all on its own. No aggregators. And they said again today they're not planning to team up with anyone. They think that they can handle it alone. They don't see a reason to. We had a spirited discussion yesterday among the group on uh, the flavored seltzers, the hard <laughs> seltzers. I want to ask the, the assembled panel here, what do you do when you're ordering pizza, local stores or Domino's or a chain? What do you do, Seema? Well, Domino's has a mobile-friendly app. It's really intuitive. So if you're just uh, wanting to order something, you need it within 20 minutes, you go with Domino's. If you're looking for quality, maybe you go for that neighborhood spot. And, of course, it also depends, Leslie, on where you live. Yeah. If you have access, as many of us do in New York and New Jersey, to the, the world's best pizza. So that's what I was going to say. You where know. I grew up in Kansas, you were kind of limited to the Domino's and the Pizza Huts and the Papa John's of the world. Now that I'm in New York City... There are so many different pizza options, so I opt for something local. Something we, are to gonna do, we are going to do a, uh, a rapid fire where we have a pizza taste test. Wait, yes. do I get to weigh in here? Yeah, you get to weigh in. Go <laughs> okay, ahead, listen, Kate. As the restaurant's reporter and also like huge pizza lover, pizza would be my last meal before I die. Yeah. So I eat all <laughs> kinds of pizza. I don't discriminate. I got to try everything, and I love it. So 
All That's right. my answer. <laughs> so let's go from eating pizza to Peloton, shall we? Uh, it's sort of the opposite ends of the spectrum here. <laughs> uh, another stay-at-home name getting downgraded today, UBS, uh, lowering its rating on Peloton to neutral, saying the run-up in the stock this year pushed its valuation too high and that it sees, quote, limited upside from current levels. It's really a valuation call, I suppose. Peloton shares have soared more than 100% so far this year as gyms remain closed due to coronavirus restrictions. Uh, Leslie, let's talk about Peloton. I don't know whether you have one. What do you think here? I, uh, I do have one. Yeah. I've been using it a lot yep. uh, during the crisis, but I had it before the crisis. I think one of the key issues for Peloton uh, during this stay-at-home trade situation has been the delivery backlog. Uh, I'm part of, now that I'm a mom, I'm part of these mom Facebook groups, and you hear constantly from moms saying, you know, does anyone have a used Peloton I can buy? Because... If you order one right now, it can take weeks or even months to get them because they're in such high demand. Uh, you know, that's something that, you know, once gyms do start opening back up, it'll be interesting to see if Peloton can still benefit from that trend, especially since they're potentially losing orders for people that just don't want to wait six weeks for, for the bike to show yeah, up at the their gym, door. Yeah, the gym business is going to be a tricky one because I think people are going to take, it's going to take a while for people to feel comfortable yeah. uh, going back to the gym. I have a Peloton. The thing that is always been curious to me, uh, and I've used it more than I thought. I got it r- mm-hmm. roughly around Christmas last year. I've used it a lot more than I thought I would. Um, the thing that has always been curious to me is that there is no barrier to entry particularly here, Seema. I mean, you, you, you can invent a bike just like the Peloton or largely like the Peloton and do what it does and probably undercut the price. And SoulCycle did. They came out with a competitor, yep. a, a you know, stay-at-home bike that you can buy that is at a similar price point, I believe, to the Peloton bike. And so you're right. The barrier to entry is low. But, God, you look at the stock. I mean, the pandemic saved Peloton. It IPO'd at 29 a share, then went to 18 at, at right at the height of the pandemic. And now it's at, what, 62? So it just speaks to how... A lot of people think, I mean, I know this is a valuation call, but a lot of people think that this sort of work at, work out at home concept is here to stay. Well, I hope, uh, Kate, that some of those instructors there like Robin Arton and, and Arzon, Arzon. Robin, no, somebody they corrected Robin. me in the air. Somebody <laughs> knew it. They knew it. They knew it. And, and who's the one? There's a good one there. Allie Love. She's very good. I, like I hope Allie. they got stock, Kate, in that company. Yeah, me too. But you know what, Tyler? I just think moving forward, as Seema mentioned, this is going to be a huge play just because the gym will be changed forever. And even when it's safe, how comfortable are people going to feel going back? So whether it's a Peloton or perhaps something that's a bit cheaper, who knows? Maybe they could come out with lower price equipment, which has been spoken about. You know, I think more and more people will will be willing to invest if they've got the space and the money to have things at home and have that option. I do the yoga on my computer with a guy named Dennis Morton. He's really, really good. I, he's fantastic. Look, they're, they're, <laughs> Leslie's smiling. She knows Dennis. I do that. Uh, yep. I've done Dennis's yoga right. classes, too. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just let that one sit. All right. Next, uh, new data shows that after 12 straight weeks of rising occupancy, hotels located in coronavirus hotspots now starting to see a decline in stays. Seema, you've been following this totally. story. I guess there was a comeback and now a fall off. Yeah, it's exactly right, Tyler. You're starting to see a drop in hotel occupancy in states like Texas and Florida where COVID cases are on the rise. But here's what's really interesting. If you take a look at the states that are seeing the strongest hotel occupancy trends, 
Get ready for it. Idaho, Montana, South Dakota. As you know, Tyler, these are not states that are popular tourist destinations over the summer, but it just speaks to how travelers' preferences are changing post the pandemic. This need for outdoor space, access to national parks, that's driving more tourists into these states. And Montana has had a very low uh, rate of COVID throughout. It's a it's maybe my favorite state in the country. It's just so gorgeous out there. And I went to Idaho last year, a little town called Sandpoint. Idaho has had a bounce back in some cases in, in uh, Boise, as I recall, Seema. Yeah, you're exactly right. So that's a trend to watch, right? The correlation between the rise in COVID cases and how long it has an impact on Americans and their travel, uh, their travel plans, if you will. For mm-hmm. Florida, it took about two weeks to start to see a dip in occupancy once cases started to rise. There. Looks like the Airbnb IPO may be back on track, Seema. Yeah, according to comments from Brian Chesky, it looks like Airbnb is prepping its IPO. What's interesting, from a travel perspective, the big trend this summer has been the rise of vacation rentals, Tyler. Demand is up, prices are up, especially in go-to uh, domestic markets like the Hamptons and Berkshires. And so I wonder if that strengthens Airbnb's position and helps it uh, prepare its financial books for this potential idea Air- here. Airbnb in the Hamptons, less of you. Airbnb mm-hmm. better be rich, I guess, is what, you, <laughs> what I'd say there. Any, any insights on the IPO? So... It's one of those IPOs uh, in talking with sources over the last few years. It's been kind of like on again, off again. Palantir is another one that I would put in that bucket of being on again, off again, on again, off again. Now, Palantir has filed confidentially. It appears to be on at least until it's not. Airbnb, I would I would put in that same category. It's a possibility for 2020. It's not a definite for 2020, but there's certainly an incentive to get out in 2020 because there are uh, there are restricted stock options for employees that do expire at the end of the year. So if they don't get out at 2020, they might have a, a disappointed workforce, which isn't really good for and, and Kate, finally, a milestone for Amazon today, marking the 25th anniversary of the of the real debut of going online at Amazon.com, not the anniversary of its uh, IPO date. When the site launched on this day back in 1995, Amazon was simply a virtual bookstore with about 10 employees based in Washington state. Of course, now it is a global powerhouse, literally sells everything. It streams sports, movies, more, has production, giant cloud company. Last year, revenue of about $300 billion. And if you invested $10,000 when Amazon went public two years after it went online, you would have now about $20 million. Kate, uh, it's hard to imagine a time when there wasn't Amazon. So often do we use it today. But I have to say, here was this guy who had worked in a, in a hedge fund, a quant hedge fund, D.E. Shaw in New York. He left to pursue this dream. I would not have thought that Amazon would have, and I remember when it was just a bookseller, and then it, and it sold CDs. And remember those CDs? Uh, <laughs> And now it owns retail in a way that I don't I can't imagine Jeff Bezos even dreamed of. I mean, it's just incredibly remarkable to think about how this business has grown. And even just looking through through the years as we're pulling up here, you know, the Whole Foods acquisition was such a big deal. That was in 2017. Just like the the, the size and scope of the business, how it's continued to grow, how it's continued to evolve when it comes to retail and how much we all increasingly rely on it now in this time more than ever. As you said, I can't imagine 
you know, what life was like before this. I feel like I can't remember. There's a whole generation of folks, uh, and you're not far removed from it, if I may say so, who don't don't remember when there wasn't an Amazon. (laughs) Uh, But but let, let me just ask the panel one more time. How many times a month on average do you use Amazon? Get something. Seema, you first. Oh, at least at least twice a week. So that's, you know, eight times a month. Wow, Leslie? Oh, yeah. As a new mom, I've used it more than ever. A new mom during the (laughs) pandemic, there are diapers and wipes coming to our, uh, you know, our apartment on a a pretty much a weekly basis at this point from Amazon, not to mention all the other stuff we order. So I would say also biweekly. Kate, how about you? Yeah, same for us. And quite frankly, I'm willing to pay a little bit more if I have to for certain things, if I don't need to run out to Target or Walmart or whatever it may be, uh, just for the convenience of having it delivered. I try and conserve by ordering, you know, things all together. So I'm not having as many packages come, but it's tough to do. And, you know, like I said, more than ever, we're getting more and more packages every week in our apartment. I'm with you guys. It's probably twice a week or more. Yesterday, it was football cleats for my son. He was very happy. They fit this time. (laughs) Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Seema, Leslie, and Kate Rogers. Uh, And still ahead, JetBlue and American Airlines have struck a deal to take on Delta and United in the Northeast. Why this key U.S. market brought these competitors together. That's next. And tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern time, CNBC, in partnership with Acorns, will host a special virtual live town hall. We bring together Americans affected by the economic downturn and financial experts who will answer their questions, their most urgent questions, and offer strategies to reset and rebuild their financial futures. That is tonight, right here, 7 p.m. Eastern Time, all times on CNBC. Welcome back, everybody. American Airlines and JetBlue teaming up now to take on United and Delta for dominance in a very important U.S. market. Phil LeBeau now with the details. Hi, Phil. Hi, Tyler. We're talking about the Northeast, New York City, the tri-state area, Boston, really the the hottest corridor in terms of traffic here in the United States. And when you take a look at shares of American and JetBlue, the reason we're showing you both of these is because they have agreed to a code share agreement. And as part of that code share agreement, it essentially allows them to share passengers. In other words, American can book a passenger, put it on a JetBlue flight, and vice versa. JetBlue can do the same with American. And here's the reason that these two airlines have made this deal. It allows American to have more options in New York City and in Boston. I think there's like a 100 or plus uh, routes of JetBlue that they can put passengers on. JetBlue will have more access at LaGuardia and Newark. And eventually when that foreign market uh, improves, transatlantic flights, et cetera, that are part of the American system. But this is really all about the New York City area at the end of the day. Look at the market share and where American and JetBlue are relative to their competitors. Delta and United, they dominate those that New York City market. We're talking about LaGuardia, Newark, and JFK. And so American and JetBlue are looking to get stronger. When you take a look at all of the airline stocks, remember, all of these airlines are going to get smaller. Come October 1st, they have to get smaller. They just don't have the revenue, and they're still doing the cash burn at way too high of a rate. And so when these airlines get smaller, they're going to have to do more with less. And in terms of being smaller, a big reason why is the passenger levels. The latest numbers from yesterday, down 78%. So we're not seeing the snapback in uh, demand, Tyler. 
All right, Phil, thank you very much. Phil LeBeau in Chicago for us. Coming up, Tiger King, The Circle, and Unsolved Mysteries are just a few of the Netflix originals people binged during the nationwide shutdown. And Netflix shares have climbed more than 55% since the March lows. Can the positive momentum continue? We'll talk about that one next. Earnings coming out after the bell. All right, welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Netflix set to report earnings after the bell today. And the stock, which is one of those stay-at-home names, has been on a tear up nearly 60% in 2020. Content-wise, also been a very good year. Despite losing a binge favorites like Friends and The Office, Netflix quarantine lineup is full of hits. There's Tiger King, Love is Blind, Space Force, and more. So can Netflix keep the strong performance going? Let's bring in Sarah Fisher, media reporter for Axios. What do you think, Sarah? I mean, th- this company keeps defying uh, sort of gravity, number one, and the odds, number two. Is there a point where they bump up against the addressable market in the United States? I can imagine that there's a huge unaddressed market uh, internationally. That's right. I mean, we thought that they hit that ceiling a few quarters ago when Netflix began to plateau in the United States. But the pandemic has been a boon for Netflix here domestically as people are locked at home. The big question we thought a few quarters ago was, could Netflix continue to capitalize on that growth despite incoming competition from the likes of Disney Plus, HBO Max, and as we saw, Peacock, which just launched yesterday to non-Comcast streamers. Now, investors think that Netflix is going to beat estimates for subscriber growth and earnings. What I'm looking for is whether or not it can sustain that momentum next quarter as the lockdowns continue to ease. Let's talk about some of the of, of the competition here that has come. You just mentioned Peacock, which is uh, uh, the Comcast NBC Universal offering that is just uh, debuting this week. Um, are those and Disney Plus, uh, uh, HBO Max, others, are they eating away at Netflix in any discernible way? You know, we didn't see it come from the past two streamers, and I doubt we're going to see it from Peacock. Remember, Peacock is billing itself as a free streaming platform. Sure, you could pay for a tier with advertising if you're not a Comcast subscriber, but that's not what NBC wants. They want to be able to sell people ads through the free version. So I don't see them picking at Netflix's dominance here whatsoever. As far as Disney Plus and HBO Max, sure, I do think they might have eaten at Netflix's opportunity domestically, maybe a little. But we've seen over those past two launches, both in November and in April, that Netflix continued to have strong momentum even afterwards. I think Netflix's biggest challenge is what's going to happen internationally. Now, we know third-party vendors like Sensor Towers said they've done great in India, a big focus of Netflix's. I'm curious to see what that growth has looked like after we see earnings today at the end of the bell. So let's say it does well on earnings and subscriber growth makes the numbers or exceeds the numbers. Uh, are, is a beat built into the stock price right now? I mean, a lot of Netflix investors would say yes. Analysts would say yes. Look, you even mentioned it. Its stock is up well over 50% since those lows in March. The other thing to remember here is that how high can Netflix really go? At this point, as I mentioned, I think they're mostly saturated domestically. We'll see what happens internationally. I think a lot of that price fee is built in. But we'll still expect to see a bump when they beat today. You know, one of the things that has been uh, a a terrific boon for Netflix has been their success and their investment in the multi-billions of dollars in in fresh 
uh, and original programming. But that programming production has to have ground to a halt this year, right? It has. And in a sense, that's a good thing for Netflix. I mean, last quarter was their first cash flow positive quarter ever because they weren't dumping billions of dollars into production and they were adding subscribers. But to your point, it is hard to increase original programming when you have production halted. Netflix, however, has still been able to put out hits. As you showed at the top of the show, Space Force, Outer Banks, these shows have done incredibly well. You know, Unsolved Mysteries reboot for Netflix. So I would continue to see momentum coming from Netflix in terms of programming, despite the fact, as you mentioned, that they're losing some new things uh, to NBC and others like The Office and Friends. Yeah, it's true. And, and of course, the show we've been talking about during this hour has been Fauda, not a production of Netflix's, but but one that airs there. Uh, they really do have some have some uh, fantastic shows. And, and one of the attractions, of course, is that you do not have to pay ads. I don't have to watch ads while you do it. So that's an, an, an advantage. Sarah, thank you very much for your time today. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. Fantastic. We enjoyed it. Thanks for inviting us into your kitchen. And thanks for watching The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash.